so we walk across, go into um, Vice President Pence's office, and he's behind the desk, and he's clearly agitated. Um, and so he reads a couple lines from a particular speech, and he says, why is this in here? Well, sir, the reason that specific language is like that is because if we don't include that, we're going to have some significant repercussions throughout the region, um, and that language is there as a signal that although we're saying this over here, it's signaling to them that we understand the human part of how they're receiving it. Um, and he's like, okay, well, did so-and-so see this, and did they clear on it as well? It's like, yes, sir, we, we worked it through them as well. It's like, okay. He kind of took a deep breath. My blood pressure's going down. He said out loud, okay, get out. Like, okay, so I left. <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to the Players Hall Podcast. My name is C1C Jack Wachtel, here with my NCO C2C Maya Mandium. And our special guest with us today is Colonel Chris Bauman, an assistant professor in the political science department. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, sir, um, aside from being both Maya and I's teacher, <laughs> for, I think it was sophomore year and then last year, mm -hmm. could you give us a quick elevator pitch of how you got here today? Sure. So, um, I graduated from ROTC in the People's Republic of Boulder, up the street from here. So I actually enjoyed college. Um, I won't say unlike you, but you know, you can compare. I did an aero degree there and then went to pilot training right away and got C-27s uh, in Panama, which no one knew what a C-27 was and hardly anybody knew where Panama was. So it was an interesting uh, assignment night drop. Uh, we loved it, spent three years down there, flying all around Central and South America, and then went to C-5s at Travis, um, and so kind of added the rest of the world to the destinations, had a great time doing that, and I went to the schoolhouse in Altus at the time um, to teach other people how to fly the C-5, and did that for another four years or so. So after about 12 years of flying, went to Air Command and Staff College as a student uh, down in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, and felt my uh, my awareness of the world just kind of open up in the sense that the way those intermediate service schools are designed is that they give you a picture of here's what everybody else has been doing in the Air Force for this whole time that you've been doing your one thing um, and then here's what the other services do what they bring to the fight and then here's how just the Department of Defense fits into the whole rest of the federal government structure in terms of tools in the policymakers toolbox um, and I just loved that stuff, the whole international security scene. So I raised my hand, volunteered to go do more of that, stayed on the faculty at ACSC, and then got picked up to do a PhD at the University of Denver, up the road from here, at the Corbell School. Absolutely love that. Wrote a dissertation on the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Um, went back to Air Command and Staff College for payback, because you have to give them some time back for these degrees and then went to uh, Iraq to work with the United Nations, the United Nations Assistance Mission there, which was an absolute hoot. We can talk more details about that if you're curious later. Um, and then came back from Iraq and got stationed at National Defense University in, in D.C. Um, at their, uh, their version of INSS. There's this International, uh, the Institute for National Strategic Studies. 
Um, and then after a year or two being there, got pulled on to uh, the peace team that Secretary Kerry was running, so working Israeli-Palestinian peace process issues. Um, we were back and forth to the region every three, four weeks, working with Israelis and Palestinians and Jordanians. Ultimately, they went back to war, uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians, in Gaza, and so that whole thing fell apart after about a year and a half, well, 15 months. Um, so I went back to NDU and um, worked some Islamic State stuff in the background, uh, planning to counter uh, that for the coalition that was countering ISIL at the time. And then when the Trump administration came into office, I got pulled over to the National Security Council to be the senior director for Israeli, Palestinian, Jordanian, Egyptian affairs um, there. Worked out for about 15 months and then came here. Do you regret your specialization in like that that section of the Middle East, or did it get, did it get old? Or oh no, no, it never gets old. <laughs> I mean, it, it does kind of rhyme after a while, uh, as people will say, but um, no, it doesn't get old. There's too much going on, too much excitement. Yeah. So you started with Ira- your Iraq deployment mm-hmm. out there, working with the inter- inter- interagency cooperation, right? Am I getting that right? Yep. Helping, okay. yeah, helping the Iraqis and specifically in this case the UN. The U.S. was pulling out, so U.S. forces Iraq, USFI was departing uh, per uh, the agreement made in the Bush administration and then executed during the Obama administration. So they were leaving by December of 2011. Um, the UN, of course, was going to stay because they stay in all the hard places. Uh, but they were very dependent on USFI for all of their logistics, movement, and all that kind of stuff security stuff, so uh, our team was helping them kind of wean them, helping the UN wean themselves off of USFI support, um, but working within the UN was just hilarious. It's kind of the land of misfit toys um, in a war zone like that. The people that go there and work there like on purpose and stay there for a long time um, are interesting in terms of their personalities, and they're from all over the world, literally, so watching that whole organization work together was fascinating. Was it difficult you? Uh, pardon. Was it difficult for you to kind of step foot in that sort of atmosphere from coming straight from you were coming straight from the schoolhouse or? No, um, we had at, at our command and staff college. We, we focused a lot on the international security part of it. We have a much higher percentage of international officers there than you have here. There's it's more like uh, two out of um, two out of every. 15 folks will be international officers. So we had, so that, that whole thing was very familiar. So you have talked to and negotiated with so many different people and so many different kinds of people. So how do you kind of like, I don't know, how do you even do that? How do you learn those <laughs> skills? Um, human nature is pretty predictable in the sense that um, when you talk about negotiations at the international level, you know, state to state, it's still humans making up those states, right? And so the same thing that pisses you off when people do it to you at the interpersonal level kind of carries over into the international level as, as well. So um, when uh, states bully other states, people resent it, right? And so if you can recognize that and, and name that, in a lot of cases that lower some of the tension right away uh, in the room because they're like, oh, this person actually sort of understands at least a little bit of how we feel in this context. Um, And so that begins to just open up 
the human contact thing, and it matters in every case. I kind of find that common denominator, like when when it comes to that sort of scenario, just finding the lowest common denominator, which is just the human to human interaction. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, is there any difference in like how they might perceive ethics or morals in this sort of atmosphere versus like what we are taught here at USAPA? Yeah. So here's a really interesting way to think about that question. Um, we were briefing uh, the person who at the time, <laughs> this is funny, just realized where he is now. The person who at the time was the chief of staff of the army, he was on his way to CENTCOM. And so he wanted to get kind of a brief up on you know all things Middle East. And so a small group of us went over from National Defense University who had expertise in that area and briefed him. And one of his staff members in the back of the room kind of piped in and said, we're talking about Iran and what do you do about Iran? And they piped in and said, you know, well, aren't they just totally irrational? Um, no. So the way, the way to kind of understand that is that there are different sets, there are different value sets. And if you pull out one value set and plug in another value set, it produces what to you might look irrational. But if you understand the set of values that are inside of it, inside of that system, all of a sudden it makes sense, right? So the collective is more important than the individual is a huge difference between kind of quote east and west. Um, religious values in the place of Islam in society in Iran, for instance, much, much different than how we think about it in the west. So if you just sub out a couple of those, those value sets and realize this is how they're looking at the world, all of a sudden they don't look irrational at all. Um, and one of the illustrations of that that we use is you know, in Chechnya, there's this, there was this big Muslim uprising uh, against the Russians and the Iranians who were leading the Islamic revolution for the world said nothing. And it's like, isn't this like a test case where you would, you know, expect that Iran would be jumping up and down saying, uh, you know, defend the Chechen cause? And they weren't because they were receiving significant weapons from Russia at the time. So their interests were very much at play in there, just like anything else. Um, so again, you pull without the different pieces and it makes sense out of those kind of situations. Do you think your your background with like a STEM degree in undergrad and then flying um, influenced your then later specialization in more international security and like policy or are they completely separate spheres? No, I think the, the beauty of the education that we do give here, the big core that drives everybody crazy, but you get lots of engineering and science and math as well as lots of humanities. It just prepares your brain in a way that you just can't really do otherwise. So I always appreciated having the engineering background because it kind of gives you a way to think systematically about stuff and go, okay, here's the inputs and here's the processes and here's the outputs. Um, a lot of that kind of carried over into political science. It's just that there's a lot, lot, lot more variables, right? So instead of two, maybe three, woo, three variables, you've got 3,000 variables, right, that are going on at the same time. So I found it helpful. How is that transition from working, like, on the front lines of this sort of, like, cooperation, international cooperation, to working, you know, at the NSC where you're a couple echelons away? Right. Um... So the NSC is a fascinating place. Um, it's <laughs> it's difficult to work there in the best of times, um, and this is where you have to understand. I'm talking 
clinically about this from a political science perspective, not from a political perspective, but the Trump administration was not normal times in the way that people were handling themselves. So the National Security Council itself, typically a quarter-ish, maybe a third-ish at the most, of the appointees there are political appointees working in all the different positions, typically the leadership positions. And then the other two-thirds to three-quarters of the NSC staff are professional staff, air quotes, that are seconded to the NSC from Department of Defense, from CIA, from the rest of the intelligence community, state, etc. And so all of those professional folks, the two-thirds to three-quarters of those, we've all raised our right hand to support and defend the Constitution. We do that in all the other departments and agencies as well. Um, so the opinions that they bring are, are based on subject matter expertise, right? The political appointees that are there are very much about, you know, whatever the administration's agenda is in, in driving it politically. And in normal times, you know, there's tension, but it kind of works. Uh, the thing that was different about the Trump administration is that a lot of the political appointees were hyper-political um, and had specific agendas that they were driving that made life very difficult um, for the professional staff. Now, this happens in every administration to different degrees, like within the Obama administration, as an example, um, President Obama called the security kind of apparatus the blob. That was his name for it, um, because he felt like the blob had a, had a playbook, and if, if you didn't do what the playbook said, you were you know, abrogating your responsibilities as the commander-in-chief. And he resented that. Um, for understandable reasons. That's not just the Department of Defense, it's kind of the rest of the intel community and all the think tanks and all that stuff. Jeffrey Goldberg did an outstanding article on that. Um, so that was President Obama's way of describing it. President Trump's way of describing it was the deep state, right? He wants to get something done, but the deep state keeps pushing back on him. Well, that deep state, you know, depending on your view on it, those are the professionals that have been dealing with this stuff forever. So we live in a system where the policymakers make the decisions, right? And we, um, as the military and as the other sworn officers in the different departments and agencies, um, carry out that policy as long as it's legal, constitutional, all that kind of stuff. The challenge in this case is that there was a lot of stuff that was pushing right up against or over that line of legality, constitutionality, that sort of thing. So I think one of your, your questions was, you know, how do you... You know, what kind of ethical dilemmas did you run into? Um, that's what many of us hit our heads against on a regular basis, where a political appointee would come in and say, we want to do this. And <laughs> we'd have to go, well, uh, that's illegal uh, for these three reasons. And it's also internationally highly frowned upon, at least. So... I understand your policy goal, so how about we try it through A, B, or C? And it gets towards the same thing you want to do, but it's actually, you know, legal. Um, and they grumble and complain, but eventually they would typically do what we would, what we would suggest in that way. And that happened a lot towards the beginning of the administration, but as the administration, you know, grew into its role, as happens in every administration, um, to a certain degree, they felt like the, the political appointees felt like they could do um, more and more with less and less advice, so to speak. Like they got to know some of the players, they developed some interesting relationships with some of the players, 
Um, and that gave them confidence in their ability to make decisions that were awfully short-sighted in a lot of ways. Um, so for the dilemma part, um, it's the whole speaking truth to power thing. Like I had so many conversations where I walked out of the room and thought, ah, that's it. They're going to fire me this afternoon. Um, and they didn't. Uh, in fact, they asked me to stay longer, but I was like, well, I have an appointment in Colorado Springs I need to go to. So 15 months was good. That was enough. But that kind of thing happened over and over, um, mostly because people were appointed who, uh, on the political side, who didn't really understand what they were being asked to do, didn't understand the ramifications, didn't understand what would happen if they took certain paths. Um, so pushing back on that respectfully was something we had to do a ton. Yeah, I still distinctly remember the day in class when you showed us the picture of the National Security Council room and you pointed at a seat and you said, this was my seat. And yeah. I was just like in awe. So this is just fascinating to me. Um, are there any, I don't know how much you can tell us, are there any like specific stories of like ethical dilemmas or just trials and tribulations you faced while on the NSC? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Uh, so I have to be careful and not name names in weird ways, but... Um, hmm. so here's a fun one. Uh, a group of uh, folks at the pretty senior levels wanted to put on a conference. This is later in the administration. This is probably 20, uh, early 2018. Um, we, we, the United States, had cut off a bunch of funding to the Palestinians that we had traditionally given. And the reason that we the funding was there in the first place was because if you don't fund like these schools, that are largely secular, then place, people like Hamas roll in and make it a completely religious education, quote unquote, which is you know pretty unhelpful for the context. Um, so we, the United States, would provide funding through uh, UNRWA, United Nations Relief Works Agency, um, to, to run schools and that sort of thing. Well, we, the Trump administration decided they didn't want to fund that anymore, so they cut it off. And then uh, these couple higher level folks wanted to hold a donor conference for Gaza, which means bring in a bunch of people and, you know, get pledges, uh, you know, they're going to give money there and because Gaza's a complete disaster. Um, and my initial response was, well, we could do that, but because we've cut off all of our funding and we have zero plans to reinstate it, we're going to look a little bit silly trying to get other people to fund what we were refusing to fund. They're like, no, 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 we want to do it. Okay. <laughs> so we began to put the logistics in motion to make it happen. And at a certain point, um, I had to ask, okay, so who do you want to emcee this thing? Because what the conference would look like was in the treaty room. Um, you'd have these tables set all around the room and they wanted the folks at the foreign minister level from all the Gulf countries and all these places to be sitting there um, while presentations were made. Um, uh, we had a couple senators come by. Lindsey Graham was there for a while. Um, so it was a big kind of a production. Um, and so I said, so who do you want to emcee it? I assume one of you two are gonna do this, right? And they looked at each other and they said, no, we want you to do it. And I was like, are you serious? I, I, uh, and they stuck to their guns, so I ended up being the one standing there with a the microphone and orchestrating this whole thing that I knew was making the United States look a little bit silly because, hey, come on, donate to our cause. We're not donating, but 
go ahead and do it. So it was just sort of a bizarre situation that we landed in. Within your position, was there ever a time when you felt like you didn't give the right recommendation? And then how mm. did you deal with that? <laughs> yeah. So very early on, like within two weeks of my arrival there, um, one of the things we have to clear on all the time are White House statements. Um, you know, those things go out on a regular basis. This is what the United States feels about this. And and one came across my desk, and we were in a super hurry to do something else. And I read it, but probably not closely enough, made a little bit of a tweak to send it out. We distribute throughout the NSC to all the different directorates so they can see it as well. And about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes later, somebody called me up, and they like, did you... Did you read this thing that you just cleared on? And I was like, well, I think so. What do you see? And they, they read back the sentence, and I was like, oh, my gosh, no. And so a couple folks that were, you know, hardcore about the way they were approaching Israeli-Palestinian conflict just were gleeful that this sentence was there and had been cleared on. And so I had to push back on that, and they were well above my level. Um and I had to push it, and put, it was about three rounds of emails back and forth, and they finally were like, okay, we'll change it. Um, but it was just like, as soon as I saw it, it was this sinking feeling of, oh, I can't believe I just did that. But it turned out okay in the end, but they were not happy to have that loss. So I imagine joining the community is a lot of stimulus, like right off the back. Oh, right gosh, off the back, yeah. And it's, it's a water fountain, like a waterfall of information. Yeah, you're running 100 <laughs> miles an hour. Um, hundred hour weeks are not abnormal. Um, you're just you're just there, and when you're not there, you're on call. Um, I was running in the woods in Fort Belvoir, and my son came chasing after me with a bike. He said, "Dad, your phone's ringing. It's the White House sit room." And I'm like, Leave me alone. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just a weird, weird space to be in, and you just have, you have to realize, and this is part of the ethical part, you have to realize it's not about you. Um, you're just fulfilling a role that any officer would fill, fulfill. Um, you know, during the peace process, we were, you know, in armored limousines screaming through streets that were all blocked off, you know, from Tel Aviv all the way up to Jerusalem. And, you know, you could start to feel like, yeah, I'm somebody. But you're not. It's not about you. It's about the position that you're fulfilling and you owe your duty to the Constitution and to the American people to make it work as well as you can. But it's not about you. Were there, I know that we can't like name names or you might not be able to get into it, but were there some people where they had to have that sort of talking to about like, hey, this isn't about you, this is about your issue? I did not have to have that conversation with anybody because the folks on my team were great. Um, they were all seconded as opposed to the political appointees. Um, some of the political appointees needed that talk. <laughs> But it wasn't my place to give it to them, so uh, somebody else had to take that on. Were there ever times when you were like trying to communicate with someone or trying to negotiate with someone who, whether it be for like different cultural backgrounds or like a language barrier, that like they could just not understand your message? I'm sure that happened often. I, the question is, did I know it? Right, like that's the tricky part. So when we were working on the. Um, this is during the Obama administration working on this. We were, we were building, our portfolio was the security architecture for a two-state outcome. 
Um, and it was, you know, design this thing for air, land, space, electromagnetic spectrum, strategic sites, all this stuff, such that Israelis and Palestinians both could live in peace and security. Um, so that it was a pretty hefty process. And during one of the meetings, we were sitting with um, an Israeli team from there, from the Israel Defense Forces, the IDF. And a particular point came up about that negotiation, and it was, it was pretty immediately clear that they just couldn't see the, that particular issue from kind of a broader perspective. Like you're, you're in the fight, you're, you're in it day to day, you're just doing this thing constantly and it's really hard to back away from it and see it from, the, from somebody else's perspective. And what's happening in the Israeli-Palestinian and the broader Israeli-Arab conflict is that there are at least two completely different narratives about what's happened. And narrative is, a, is not the same thing as myth. Narrative is, um, you know, here's a set of historical facts and my group is going to kind of emphasize parts of it and de-emphasize other parts of it, and that becomes our narrative. So it's not made up. It's just that you're emphasizing or de-emphasizing different things, and the opposite side is probably doing exactly the opposite, emphasizing the things you're de-emphasizing, etc. So because of the narrative they were working with, um, they just they just couldn't see the points we were making about. Um, how this particular issue was coming across. And um, we went hours and hours and hours. And finally, later in, like late into the evening, there was sort of like this light bulb that went on. And you could almost see it um, for this one person in particular. Like, oh, that's what you mean. <laughs> um, so eventually it came out. And I wish I could describe in more detail what was there, but... Um, it was, it was fascinating to see that happen. There are other ones that happen, you just don't know that they're not getting it maybe, so you're fighting for feedback and asking, you know, is that making sense? What about this? Let me state it this way, because you are dealing with translators sometimes and language barriers and cultural barriers and all that. Um, and the only way to get through it is just to fight for, okay, do you tell me what you just heard me say. Um, and that's usually pretty effective. So, uh, as we start to wind down here a little bit, mm -hmm. what was your favorite base? Base? Boy. Um, being in the middle of the jungle in Howard Air Base in Panama was a hoot. Panama City, Panama, not Panama City, Florida. Um, we literally lived with Cotamundis and toucans and boa constrictors and everything else kind of all around us. Uh, and that was a blast. Loved being down there. I imagine you've had to stay at pretty unique bases throughout your career, like when you're in Iraq and then also when you're in Panama. Was that the most unique base that you think you like you were assigned to, or um, unique is a strange definition? So, <laughs> like, like, like when we ask people their favorite bases, they don't, typically don't have something like Panama to talk about. Like that, mm -hmm. That's pretty neat. Yeah, it's closed now too, yeah. so no fewer and fewer people can talk about it. But in Iraq, the cool thing about being with the United Nations is we moved around a lot more. So I actually got to spend time in Baghdad, in Tikrit, in uh, all the way up in Erbil, uh, in Mosul. Um, so I saw a lot more, not Tikrit, Kirkuk, I'm sorry, my mistake. So I got to see a lot more of the country than the average American hanging out there did. And it was fascinating to see the different ways uh, that uh, 
things worked. So for instance, in Erbil, that's in the Kurdish region. Um, and we were there on a UN mission and instead of being full battle rattle, we were walking around in civilian clothes on the town square because the, the Kurds had their act together in terms of security. Now it's, very, it's a very oppressive place, but nonetheless, it was very secure compared to the whole rest of the country. So just this kind of bizarre mental uh, I, I, I agree with you. I think unique was the wrong word. I, I guess with the UN and uh, your, your specific situation, there's a lot of things I don't really know about with mm. like the locations where you might have been. But, okay, favorite assignment? The White House. The White House? Yeah, I mean, you can't beat it. We would, we, you could go out two different directions at the end of the day, which was 9 or 10 o'clock at night. Um, and intentionally, I and a couple others, we always walked out the east side of the West Wing uh, or the east side of the Eisenhower building, rather, because the West Wing was right there. So you would see the White House flag flying above it, and you're like, that's right, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. That's why we're here. And you would just kind of remind yourself of that every day, which mattered. So it was excruciating and exhilarating all at the same time, all wrapped together. You think you could have gone longer or no? Than the 15 months? I mean, I could have. I chose not to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doubting you, sir. I'm just saying. No, no, no. It's all good to deal with. If you could go back, would you? Yeah, it'd be... I mean, part of what made it so hard was the hyper-political environment that was there at the time. Um, and I have, you know, lots of friends that were there before that are there now. Um, and it's it's more back to normal under the current administration, but it's always, it's always hard. But what you're doing matters so much that you just kind of can't pass it up. Do you ever see like a news story come about your your news source that you're looking at in the morning and go, geez, I wish I was there to help with this one? <laughs> um, I don't think I've ever had that feeling, no. <laughs> There's not like an anonymous feedback sort of thing you can send in your, your thoughts? Uh, not officially. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sir, well, could you end us off with a war story? A war story. War story, favorite story. I was walking through the Eisenhower building down the hallway. I probably relayed this in class in different ways. Um, minding my own business when a, a friend of mine who worked for the vice president at the time grabbed me and said, um, the vice president's really pissed off about this particular speech that you guys worked on. Um, I don't really understand all the details. Can you come over and explain it to him? It's like, sure, uh, of course. So we walk across, go into um, Vice President Pence's office, and he's behind the desk, and he's clearly agitated. Um, and so he reads a couple lines from a particular speech, and he says, why is this in here? Like, well, sir, the reason that specific language is like that is because if we don't include that, we're going to have some significant repercussions throughout the region. Um, and that language is there as a signal that although we're saying this over here, it's signaling to them that we understand the human part of how they're receiving it. Um, and he's like, okay, well, did so-and-so see this and did they clear on it as well? It's like, yes, sir, we, we worked it through them as well. It's like, okay. He kind of took a deep breath. My blood pressure's going down. He said out loud, okay, get out. Like, okay, so I left. <laughs> so that was, that was sort of a standard occurrence. <laughs> when you go into the vice president's office, do you just like knock and walk in? Or no, you're you're always escorted by, you know, their staffs. Um, 
Yeah, so this guy who was on the Vice President's National Security Council staff, the Vice President has a separate kind of a mini staff for their NSC process. Um, so that means each one of them has a much broader portfolio, so they can't be as deep. Um, but that staff member, you know, talked to the inner office staff and like, okay, come on in, come on in. It's just this whole hilarious thing. But. Do you have to, like, report in when you, when you walk into... No. Well, that's the other thing is we're all in civilian, you know, oh. suits and ties. Right? Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. So nobody knows. I mean, you can kind of figure it out after a while, but you don't initially know what rank anybody is. Um, which is what makes it such a unique thing because you're, you know, you're a subject matter expert, you're a professional, but now you're in this completely kind of civilianized environment. I just imagine like what we see in the movies with like people with all the brass sitting <laughs> yeah. around and big TV screens. And... Yeah. So, so did you go by, like, you don't even go by your rank, you're just Dr. Bauman? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That just changed my whole perspective yeah. of all the stories you just told, told no. us. No. <laughs> now I imagine you're going to think of that. That's a funny thing. I went, in, I went into the sit room one time for a, a deputies meeting. So General Selvoff was there as the rep for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, and it was on one of our issues. And, and before the whole thing started, we had a couple minutes because I had interviewed him at NDU before. So you kind of knew who I was. Um, and... We just kind of gave each other this look like, can you believe what's on the table is actually on the table? And I said, sir, are you, are you okay? He's like, yeah, it's okay, it's fine. So there's an understanding among kind of the professionals that, yeah, this stuff is a little bit nutty right now, but being able to be in and professionally influence that was pretty fun. Sir, any parting shots for the cadet winner? Parting shots. Uh... You guys are doing great. Continue to uh, press through the crazy. All this stuff that's in place here is supposed to affect your brain uh, in ways, uh, different parts of it, um, that will make you glad one day that you had gone through all the crazy. Because um, you'll be able to think and lead uh, and create in ways that the average person who's gone through college just doesn't get. So. Someday you'll like it. (laughs) Carl Bowen, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure.